please be aware that this episode will contain discussion about child sexual abuse and rape and sexual assault. So we just want you to be aware of that entering into this and seek help if you need it. Welcome back to Lost in Translations. I'm here with Mary again and we are talking about The Little Girl on the Ice Flow by Adelaide Bond, which is translated from the French by Tidikova. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to have you back. It's good to be back. <laughs> so we read this book a long time ago. It's been a couple of months. Yes. I've been a little nervous about talking about this one. Why's that? It's a very difficult conversation. Well, not difficult, but it's a... I don't know. I just feel like it's a conversation that's going to be tricky to navigate. Hmm. I think it's... I think it will be difficult. Yes. But I wish we had done it immediately after I finished because well, I was like on fire with passion for this book. Yes. This but, is very good. Yeah, but I hadn't read it then. No. But we could have done it immediately after you finished. Yes. Instead of waiting three months. So this is a memoir about sexual abuse. Mm. She was raped as a... Nine-year-old. Nine-year-old, yes. And that traumatic event kind of, her brain kind of shut down and forced her to forget it. Mm. So the way it's told is like told in a third person. Well, the parts of it are third person. Yeah, well, the most part of it's third person Mm. where she feels like an outsider looking at herself living. Mm. Yeah. And having no control on the way she acts and her emotions or mm. outbursts or anything like that. Yeah, and then at the and then towards the end it becomes first person. Yeah, right? once but that's after years of therapy and yes, yeah, uh, resolving these issues that yeah. are in a court case and yes, yeah. Mm. So I find you know like building up to that, going from the third person where. It feels like she has no control to... Taking you know, control, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's like, it feels very empowering. Yes. Mm. Uh, I found this to be a beautifully written book. Me it too. was just such a joy to read, despite the subject matter. Yeah, yeah, the prose is beautiful. Yeah. And it's like heartbreaking, and it's like, oh, just... <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, I keep saying Yeah, that. it's hard to say because you want to say such nice things about it, but then you think of the subject matter and it's like, this is very sad and should mm. never have happened. No. But um, I, f- I found when I was reading it, like, at times I felt like I couldn't put it down because it was just so compelling. And then other times I had to put it down because... Because it was so hard, yes, like so harrowing that it was hurting me. Yeah, well, I remember saying to you, oh, it's a 200-page book, I'll probably finish this in a couple of days. Yeah. And then it took me a few weeks yeah. <laughs> because it was just so difficult to read. Mm. And some people have read it, you know, in one day. Because it's not 
it's not a large book. No, it's not a large book. Yeah, and I, I was just looking on Goodreads at people's reviews, and some people have done it overnight. Yeah, I just find it difficult. It's like I had to step away from mm. that trauma. Yeah. And give myself some self care. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. But one of the things I loved about it is the way she describes, like, this feeling. She has no idea what's happened to her, but I feel she describes it like jellyfish rising up in her stomach. Mm. Sometimes they're really active and sometimes they're just quiet. Mm. And she has no way of knowing or understanding what's causing it. Yeah. And that depiction of the jellyfish I think really is a great way to kind of explore that emotion and that unknown feeling she has yeah yeah it was a very powerful it's like makes it very tangible yeah like what she's feeling like she gives it a she describes it so well that you can feel that feeling, yeah. Like the anxiety and the, the pain. Yeah, like there's something in my gut that's really mm. feeling that same feeling. Yeah. I am curious about Tina Covert because she said in an interview she doesn't read the book before translating. Mm. And just the process of translating this would have been a very full-on experience. Yeah. Especially experiencing it and trying to put it into words, into English at the same time. Mm. If Tina is listening, maybe (laughs) maybe she can come on and tell us about about the process of translating this book. Ah, (laughs) yeah. A subtle plea. (laughs) We're big fans of Tina's work. But it was interesting to... To learn that she doesn't read the book before she translated. Yeah, so. she must have a lot of trust in so a she, publisher to pick the books. Yeah. But just to go in, like, to be, especially with that content, yeah. to go in and then and then finding the right way to phrase it yeah. you know, in English so that it still captures that beauty. Yeah. Right. They've done a great job with picking the books. Everything I've read that she's translated has been great. Mm. And she has a new book out later this month and I'm really excited to read called The Little Brother. Yeah. Who wrote that? I forget. I will put it in show notes. I wasn't prepared. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think one of the things I really liked in the book, because she does go to a lot of therapy, Yes. Like, it's like 20 years, if not more, of therapy. She could still be in therapy for all I know. Um, that, you know, it explains how trauma affects you and your brain and how you process information. Yeah. And I, f- I found that very useful where, you know, we all have, I don't know if we all do, but a lot of people have had trauma in their lives. Probably yes. not to the degree of being raped as a nine-year-old, but the... um. You know, just little things maybe. They're not little, but But they smaller. do affect us. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, there's been moments of violence yeah. in my life where, you know, I have had trouble comprehending it. And and then when I read the description in the book about how your brain processes it and if your brain can't comprehend it, it shuts down and then – but it's still – has the triggers. So even though you haven't connected the trigger to the memory because yeah. it's blocked out the memory, that trigger still affects you. Yeah. 
And I found that, like, really useful. Yeah. I like the way she did this sights and sounds that trigger. Mm. Like, she's just trying to live a life and then something triggers her. Yeah. But she's writing in that third person so she can't stop it. Yeah. And she's just experiencing this trigger Mm. as someone that can't do anything about it as well. I really... That was very affecting. I think that was the thing that stuck with me the most is how she's able to pull that off. Mm. And then just as you were setting up, I was rereading bits and there was something in there when her therapist says to her about, you know, if you've experienced violence before, your brain knows to shut down quicker when it happens again and that she experienced probably a higher level of violence from the perpetrator than his other victims because it was her first experience of violence and he knew how much he had to push somebody so they would they would forget the they would block out the event. Yeah. So they had less evidence to give to the police because yes. they couldn't remember anything to tell them. And that so he had pushed her further than some of his other victims. He, there was a lot of victims. I couldn't find the number when I was looking no, it up. No, it was about 90, I think. Yeah, I think it was in the 90s. Only 30-something went to court yes. because and I think some of you, them weren't good cases, yeah, according to the police. And some of them pulled out. Yeah. I was very, like, the way they do their court was very surprising to me. There was no jury. There was a group of nine judges Mm. here in the case. Yeah. I found that very interesting, being a juror in a sitting for a crime like this, so it was very difficult to mm. process and was very emotional to me. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, considering most judges are men, it's probably not the best. Mm. But they're probably more equipped or more capable of dealing with that kind of issue. Mm. So part of me wants to say it's probably a better way to handle cases like this, but then most judges being appointed are men, it's probably a worse way to handle Mm, it. Maybe. But then do you want to give somebody the job of having to listen to cases like that over and over? No. I mean, they give They do that anyway. Yeah, that is true. That is true. They get paid and the jury sort of doesn't really. They get yeah. a little bit of money, but In the Australian I feel system. like the support for jurors is not the best, especially mm. in that kind of case. In Australia, they do have counselling available, mm. but just going in not unprepared yeah. to hear what you're going to hear is very difficult. Mm. It is. Yeah, because I did jury duty one time as well, and it was also sexual assault of a minor, and oh yeah, it was very confronting. And but that was you know one child, and this is, uh, you know, thirty yeah. to yeah. ninety children, which would I don't even want to imagine what it would be like sitting in that yeah. case. So, as part of her healing, a lot of the cases were been put forward as sexual touching mm. and she really pushed hard saying, no, I need this to be pushed. Uh, I need this to be prosecuted as rape. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of the other victims, survivors, 
didn't know that that was an option for them. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lesser sentence. Like, it was seen as a lesser crime. Yeah. Because it was sexual touching and not rape. And it's, like, weird how, yeah, you know, I sexual that- assault is broken <laughs> down into these different sections. Yeah, I don't understand it. It's, like, it's not half as bad, but it's definitely bad. But that's yeah, the way they kind of... When you're nine years old, nobody yeah. should be touching you. Yeah. Like, no. It just seems so weird to mm-hmm. try and make it out as it's a little less victimless crime. Yeah. or uh, Yeah, and in the book it mentions, like, her sister, like, when they, like, it's 23 years later, they've found the guy who has raped all these kids and she rings up her family to say they found him, they've caught him, the police haven't forgotten me. And her older sister is like, it's been 20 years, settle down, just get over it. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) okay. And even when I was reading other reviews for this book after I wrote my review on Goodreads and I saw other reviews and so many of them say why I didn't understand why she was so upset because some man touched her when she was nine years old. What's so bad about that? And I'm like, ooh, um, yeah. But as you read on, she rev- she she it reveals ha- the ex- yeah the other trauma. Did they that not read has- the rest? Well, they read the whole book and then they went, oh, at the end, I understood why she was so upset. Yeah, because you know her brain had blocked out and she was rediscovering what had happened to herself, and and so they were discovering along with her. But I just don't understand how even at the beginning. Like, even if it was, you know, sexual touching, that's still traumatic yeah. from a stranger in the stairwell of her house that this man came in and touched her. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't find that traumatic. Yeah. And yeah. admit it in a book review. No, it seems weird to say out loud. <clears throat> and put it in writing. Yeah. It's like, oh, I thought she was just overreacting. That's the problem is a lot of people think that Mm. and it feels so difficult for people to actually report these crimes. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, her parents reported it straight away. Like they came home after it happened. She, I think she had come home from school. Yeah. Their parents came home and they knew something was up because she looked upset. She said a man had touched her, went to the police station straight away. So I think it's great that her parents believed her. Yeah. And, you know, at like straight away she wasn't able to describe the extent of what had happened because it was so traumatic. Yeah. And so it was listed as sexual touching. And then after 20 years of therapy she was able to unlock the memories. And part of me thinks maybe it's better to not know, but... She found healing. Yeah, well, if you read it, like she does, you feel that change that mm. shift between the third to the first yeah where she feels like she's started to get control of her own life mm. so i think it was probably worth it yeah and i hope that she's doing okay you know like writing a book like this and then having to do like a press tour or yeah and reliving it must be difficult um so i hope that she's okay i don't know how she's going these days yeah mm. uh I hope she writes more because I really like her writing style. Mm. Even if it's more memoirs, I definitely read more from her. Yeah, and apparently she's an actress. Yeah. 
Um, so that was what she was known for before this. And so she also has other stories of violence from men that she experienced through her work. Yeah. Where, um, you know, other men had. Men are the worst. Had taken advantage of her. Yeah. Yeah. And it says, you know, um, you know, men can sometimes be attracted to people who are victims of violence because it means that their own violence isn't seen as, you know, something problematic by the victim. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yes. So after I read this book, I read Breed Lee's Eggshell Skull. Yes. Which I found quite similar. It's not translated. It's an Australian book. No, but do you want to talk about that as well? Yeah. So she's also a young woman who had a sexual assault from a family friend when she was a child. And uh, she had studied law. She was working uh, as a judge's associate when she reported her claim of historical sexual assault. And so it, um, this story is her coming to a place where she feels comfortable revealing that, what happened to her, and then going through the court system until he's found guilty. And, you know, the pressures that she's given that's put on her to not yeah. con- not continue the process. And, you know, she she had studied law. She knew more than the average person and, you know, it was still really difficult for her. How could it not be? Yeah. Um, but very similar themes, different writing style. It's like a very Australian... Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to describe the difference between an Australian prose and a French prose. But One the French, is nicer to read, I feel. <laughs> Bree's book is nicer. Like, yeah, it's, I know. It's like the the text is quite easy to read from a text point of view, not a content point of view. Yeah, yeah, and it, and you know she does um, describe other cases going through the courts while she was working there. Yeah, and so there's a lot of bad stories. I'm surprised how much Brie talks about it. Like, she does a lot of hmm. events where she talks about this issue. Hmm. Now she says she's not talking about it anymore. But yeah, because that must be difficult to yeah. relive basically every day. That's right. And we did see Brie Lee yes. know, give a talk about her book. And she was excellent. Yeah, and we cried, and she cried, and... <laughs> We all cried. We all Everyone cried. cried. <laughs> I assume everybody was crying. And now I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> we should say this, that Tina Kova translated this for Europa, the US publisher. But this was also translated by Ruth Diver for a UK publisher as well. Okay. So there's two different, different translations of this book. Came out about the same time. Oh. It'd be interesting to read the other translation to see yeah. how different it is. I would like to see the difference, but I love Tina Kova's translation of Disoriental that I wanted to get that translation. I knew I wanted mm. that's the one I wanted to pick up. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything else? We should say he was convicted of all yes. charges. Yeah. All the ones that they put yeah. forward. It was only... 30 or something cases that actually made it to the court. Mm. And I think some of them even pulled out when they saw the man. Yeah. Adelaide went to the whole court case because she wanted to see him. Yeah. And, you know, he was an old man by the time that happened. Yeah. And he 
claimed he was innocent and that he was framed and yeah. All those. And the other thing was that when it went to court, she had the list of other victims, other survivors. I don't know what to call them. Yeah, survivors, I um, think. They, um, and she knew two of them herself. And one was her best friend's older sister. And so she, like, re- immediately rang her up and they had a big talk about it. And she, as a nine-year-old, she didn't have the language to talk about what happened to her at the time. Yeah. But, you know, to know that there was another girl on the ice float with her, so she wasn't alone anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, yeah. And the other, there was another girl in her class, I think. Oh, that lived in the building. Yeah, I can't remember. But someone yeah, very closely no, associated there with There was her. a couple she knew. So, so many people in that community yeah. were affected by this man. Do you recommend it through Lee's book? Is there anything else you would recommend? I haven't seen Unbelievable on Netflix yet, but I hear hmm. that's probably going to be a nice pairing. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, yeah. You haven't watched it yet. What are you reading at the moment? So I'm currently reading Bikita, a novel of the Saint of Sudan by Veronique Olmi and translated by Adriana Hunter. And that's a French book again. Yes, I do, I do enjoy the French. I do um, like their writing style. I was, like, really surprised when I started it. For some reason, my brain told me that it would be a Sudanese writer. Yeah. I don't know why I thought that. And then I was like, Veronique always feels French, but okay, maybe <laughs> maybe she's a French-Sudanese person. I don't know. Yeah. And... <laughs> Then I was like, wow, she writes really French. And then I looked her up and she was French. So I feel very foolish for assuming it was a Sudanese Yeah, but writer. it's a fictionalised version of her life, is it? That's right. Yeah, so um, Bikita is a, um, she was a sister, a um, Kenoshan sister who lived in Italy. So um, she was originally from Sudan and she was taken as a child from her family, sold into slavery you know, not a fun story. No. <laughs> like, lots more rape. Um, you like these stories, apparently. I don't like child sexual abuse. It has been a theme for me of the reading I've had this year where there has been a lot of sexual assault stories. But this one, uh, she ends up in Italy. You know, she gets sold to an Italian. The Italian takes her back to Italy, gives her to a friend, <laughs> and... Then she then becomes friends with a friend of that family and he's a Christian, he's a Catholic, and he tries to convert her and succeeds. Um, He, like, tricks the family into putting her into a convent to be educated and then uh, she stays and becomes a nun. And I haven't finished it yet, but she becomes a saint. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's very interesting. Hmm. Excellent. So maybe maybe we can, I don't know, you're not going to read it, are you? I don't know. Maybe I can give away the ending. No. But it's um, a very, like, lots of racism she experiences while in Italy because they haven't seen somebody as dark as her. Yeah. Um, so when she, she enters a new convent and the other sisters get scared of her and they, like, try to wash the colour off her skin and Ooh. they lick her to see if she tastes like chocolate. Like, 
terrible stuff. They like yeah. put her out to be viewed for two weeks so they could get used to her. And so she's just like an exhibit for people to look at because they've never, yeah, it's just <laughs> brutal stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's a book that we would probably do for this podcast. Yeah. It's like probably very Catholic. And just like you. Yeah. Um, so I'm enjoying it and, you know, she is a saint I have been interested in in the past because yeah. I like do this thing every year where I give myself a patron saint where it's like a saint randomizer <laughs> and I get it. Anyway, one year my patron saint was Josephine Paquita. Um, so I have learned about her and um, I worked with some Sudanese people so they had a devotion to her as well. So they shared that with me. Yeah, so I knew a little bit about her, but this book goes more into her slave time yeah. as well. And obviously slavery is not good. Is it kind of white saviorish? Well, I don't I don't think so because they're not painting the Italians in a good light either. Okay. Because they're licking her to see if she tastes like chocolate. Yeah, true. Um and then they're like you know, like the the other sisters, like don't want to touch her clothes when they do the laundry. They worry they're going to catch her color, like it's contagious. Like, you know, and it's like early, it's early twentieth century. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was surprised at how people were treating her. Yeah, yeah, like. She, like, died in 1945, I think. And so that's my parents' lifetime that she was living. Yeah. Because my parents were, you know, early 1940s they were born. My grandparents' lifetime, like, it wasn't that long ago. No. And to think people were still slaves. I mean, people are still slaves now. Yeah. We forget that slavery still exists. Yeah. So I did see some reviews for the book. That's, you know, do think that it's painted the Catholic Church as saving her from slavery, even though we were active participants in slavery. Um, until, you know, it suited us to be against slavery. Um, but, you know, there, there's lots of, uh, you know, there is a, an organisation about that the Australian Catholic Religious Against Trafficking of Humans, which is a group of nuns that fight trafficking of humans. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're doing the best they can and, you know, obviously we fail in the past. Yeah, well, you've got a big history to try and... We fail at lots of things. Clean up. Yeah. Um, so, yes. I mean, there's slaves in the Bible. Yeah. And then people would use that to justify slaves in the future. Yeah. Anyway, now <laughs> we're fighting slavery. Yeah. So, you know, Josephine Bikita is also like, you know, like a patron for that sort of work as well yeah i don't know if anybody listening to this cares about this book that i've <laughs> gone on this tangent well that's probably at least that way we've covered the book and we don't need to do an episode about yeah, it you don't need to read it i might there's just so many other books yeah i don't i don't know if you would like it no i don't think it's a book for me yeah but i'm like super keen to give it to people to read okay yeah like you know um one of my colleagues is a Kenoshan sister, which is the same order. Yeah. Um, she's finished up at my work, but I'm hoping, she, uh, you know, maybe I'll run into her. She might want to read it. Maybe. Yeah. And then another colleague's, her her sister is a Kenoshan sister. 
So maybe she'll want to pass it on. I don't know. I've like got plans. <laughs> Not plans for this book. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, we will have you back. Okay, thanks. <laughs> If you want to support Lost in Translations, please go to patreon.com forward slash translations pod and all money there will help support the show. And please remember to subscribe and while subscribing, please rate the show. This will help others find the podcast. All our links to social media are in the show notes and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and let's see under translations pod. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Walgarukabar and Bindal people. We acknowledge their ownership of this land and all the traditional owners in Australia and acknowledge their care of the land. This is a Macaulay Flower production. <laughs>